Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Leading scientists and PhDs, Bonnie Kaplan and Julia Rucklidge have dedicated their lives to studying the role of nutrition and mental health. Together, they've published over 300 peer-reviewed scientific papers, many of which reveal the healing power of nutrients in the form of vitamins and minerals and the surprising role they play in brain health. In their new must-read book, The Better Brain, they share their groundbreaking research explaining how to feed our brains to stabilize our moods, stave off depression, and make ourselves more resilient to daily stress. Bonnie, Julia, welcome. Thank you, oh, Thanks for having us. So I love the book, The Better Brain, and there's an interesting story about what inspired the book. It's a personal story about a woman named Autumn. So let's start there about Autumn's story and, and how her story inspired The Better Brain. Okay. Well, actually, her story inspired me to try for the third time in my career to study nutrition and mental health. And you don't have time for me to review the first two times and why those crashed and burned. But the in the introduction to The Better Brain, I tell about how I got into it the third time. And it was kind of the magic three because this time it really led to a greater understanding about the role of the nutrients in the brain. My background, and also some of Julia's, is very physiological. I'll just speak for myself that I was in experimental physiological psychology, postdoctoral training in neurophysiology. This was all down in the States where I'm from originally. And so I understood a little bit about the biochemistry. I'm self-taught in biochemistry and some of the neurophysiology of the brain. And so I knew that nutrients were important And I later found out that our ancestors knew it, but somehow it had all been forgotten since the psychopharmacology revolution. And so along came these two men from Southern Alberta, and this is the story we tell in the book, who trying to solve the mental health problems in one of their families, the Stefan family. And it happened that when I met them, I was doing behavior genetics research. So I plotted generations in that family and it looked like 50% penetrance. That's a very high rate. This is a family where mental illness really runs in the family. And so he was at a loss and had seen too many suicides. And we talk about those in the book and was talking to an agricultural specialist in his area who he didn't know well, but who knew a lot about animal nutrition. And Jason, some of your audience might know this. If they have pets, we, we pay more attention to the nutrient intake of our pets. And people who raise farm animals, and we're in you know rural area here in Alberta, and the hogs and the cattle are very important, and they get better attention paid to their nutrient intake than we humans, okay? So because there's money in it, okay? So whereas for humans, there's money in keeping or or making us sick. At any rate, by the time I met Tony Stephan and David Hardy, they happened to have Tony's daughter, Autumn, with them. And I had avoided meeting them for about four months because I just thought, I'm done dealing with flaky people in Alberta. I don't want to hear anything more about nutrition. I've never been able to study it. Forget it. And then I heard Autumn's story. 
And if you talk to someone who has recovered from serious psychosis, and they say it's because of this new idea of a broad spectrum nutrient approach, when they're telling the truth, you knew this wasn't a scam and it wasn't a fraud. That's the background. Yeah. And so what specifically did she do? Could you provide a little bit more color? Sure. There was no company selling micronutrient formulas then. Tony and David, these two gentlemen from Southern Alberta, had just gone into drugstores and bought a whole variety of nutrients off the shelf. But you have to understand that was a revolutionary thought. because Prior to their idea of giving the brain all of the minerals and vitamins that it needs, most of the scientific research on nutrition and brain function followed the old idea of frank deficiency diseases. If you have scurvy, take vitamin C. If you, you know, one nutrient at a time. And they were not tied to that idea of a single magic nutrient. And so well, it they- It still happens, Bonnie. What still happens? Yeah, it still happens today is that practitioners still do that. Sorry they I still... to interrupt, but I was just thinking about an example yesterday where someone went and had a blood panel done and, oh, the iron is no low, so therefore- I'll give iron, but they hadn't tested for, and I, and I asked the practitioner, have you tested for molybdenum and other Selenium, trace minerals? All the trace well, minerals. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted, but I just wanted to add that. No, it's a very important point. Clinically, clinicians are still looking for a few magic bullets. The re- scientific published research was mostly on single nutrients, but they were all missing the broad picture, which is what does our brain need? So to summarize, a woman struggling with mental illness, runs heavily in the family, instead of a pharmaceutical intervention, and instead of a silver bullet nutrient intervention, essentially used an approach where she embraced a number of nutrients and that really helped her. Okay, I see where you're headed. So I have to just clarify. She had a postpartum psychosis. She was under psychiatrist's care. She was on five heavy-duty psychiatric medications. When her father and David Hardy fixed the extreme violent rages of her brother, who was still living at home, with the broad-spectrum approach, she said, I want nothing to do with this. I'm under my doctor's care. This is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I have to take all five of my medications if I want anything like a normal life and I'm not allowed to be with my baby alone because I might kill him because I have voices and everything coming along saying, kill your baby, kill your baby. But this is my life. She was at home on a visit when she had a psychotic, we, we call them breakthroughs. It's like again, the medications were not completely resolving her problems. And so they convinced her to try what they were doing with her younger brother. And that's when she started to heal. That's when she started to get well. Wow. Yeah. So like, that's an extraordinary, extreme example of deep psychosis that is life-threatening on many levels, scary. If we take a step back and go to the why behind the book, you talk about the mental health crisis we're experiencing globally. You know, just in America alone, I think 40 million Americans, you say, take some sort of psychiatric medication who knows what that number is post-COVID? You know, I, I think we can all agree the mental health crisis is, is out of control now, and it's scary as we come out of COVID, which I think we're all hopeful we will, but then we have to deal with the mental health cleanup. What's driving this? 
What's That's driving- a big question. Yeah, what's driving the mental health crisis? <laughs> okay, I'll give it a go. I don't know if anybody can fully answer that question because there's so many things that have changed. Like we, the way psychiatrists and other mental health professionals diagnose psychiatric problems, keeps the manual keeps getting updated. And so the criteria for different disorders changes. And so that means you have more people being diagnosed with certain conditions than they might have been before because of the criteria changing. That happened, for example, with ADA. The number of symptoms that you need in order to meet criteria as an adult went down. And so then you have an increase in the number of people with ADHD, for example. There's more, I think there's more awareness, more people talk about it. There's a huge attempts to try to reduce the stigma. Does that increase the number of people who go see their GP? Are, are, are practitioners more open to the idea that people can have mental health problems? All of those things are going on, but you can't help but think that our food environment must be playing some kind of a role in the increase in the number of people who have less resilience to dealing with ongoing stress. And that's one of the one of the core things that we talk about in the book is this idea that nutrition provides the brain with all of the, the nutrients that it needs in order for it to do all the things that it needs to do in terms of metabolic activities. You need all of these vitamins and minerals as cofactors to make neurotransmitters. You need them for your mitochondria to make your ATP for energy production, etc. So it's essential that we have these nutrients. So we've had about 100 years experiment where we've gradually and quite exponentially, probably more recently, reduced our nutrient intake because of the change in the foods that we eat. So we've been eating, shifted from eating a whole food diet, which our ancestors ate, to a ultra-processed food diet, which is the what many Americans are, are eating. Half of their calories come from ultra-processed food based on the big epidemiological studies. So you can't help but think that elephant in the room must be playing a role in our brain's ability to cope with what's coming. And let's face it, we have a lot of stressors. As we say in the book, we don't know, we don't think the stressors are greater now than they would have been 100 years ago, 200 years ago, thousands of years ago. But has our ability to cope with these stressors changed? Has, does that contribute to the mental health crisis? And I think we can pretty confidently say, it, yes, it probably it does, not only on its logical, but because the studies show this association and also show over time the fact that food predicts how we're going to feel. So what you eat is associated with mental health, but also that if you eat poorly today, that's going to predict that you're going to be an increased risk of mental health problems down the road. So in terms of those deficiencies, which ones do you think are driving the mental health issues? Am I allowed to say that's the wrong question without offending you, Jason? Yes, yes, you can. I am not offended. I'm not offended. Okay. Well, the whole scope of our book is to try to explain why we have to stop thinking that way, that there is some special nutrient, or as we call it the favorite few, a special small group of nutrients I mean, our brains are set up to require roughly 30 micronutrients, roughly 15 minerals and roughly 15 vitamins. And before I say more on that, I want to say, you asked me earlier about how did the autumn story lead to writing this book? Actually, it didn't. 
I mean, autumn, the, the autumn story or autumn's experience led me back into doing research in micronutrients. And that led eventually to Julia doing the same. But we had no plans to write a book. So may I answer that question about why sure. then did we write it? I don't think we've really shared this exactly, but I think you feel the same way. We were frustrated. We know, and we cover in the book, at least four categories of research that absolutely clinches as, is a strong evidence base proving the importance of nutrition for mental health, for brain health. And we know, as Julia was just saying, the people are, don't know that, and that's why they're going out and putting ultra-processed products into, I don't try not to call it ultra-processed food, because it's not food. Food is what builds our cells and makes our, enables our cells to function. This stuff isn't food. It's just macronutrients of proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, but no micro, very little micronutrients. I shouldn't do the black and white thing. And so because of our frustration that people are not learning about this research, we thought we, we really had to write this book. And we watched book after book come out saying, you should eat this, you should eat that. And they all agree. And I agree. We both agree. We should eat better. We should eat whole foods. But nobody was teaching why. And so we, this our to me, our biggest contribution in this book is the why. That's how you change human behavior. When people understand what nutrients do in the brain and the mitochondria for stress, for resilience, etc. That's why we wrote the book, because no one else was doing no. it. Well, you're preaching to the choir. I love I, our audience is a smart group and our audience believes in the power of food as medicine. Our audience takes supplements. And, th and that's where I'm going, because I think what I asked about deficiencies, they're a smart group. So if you're going to say omega-3, our audience quickly goes, all right, that's my wild salmon. That's my smash, my sardines, et cetera. Or maybe I have to take an omega-3. You talk about the power of B vitamins in the book. So I am curious, like, and I know it's not one silver bullet. I love that. What should we look out? If I'm listening right now, like, okay, I'm pretty good with my mental health, or maybe I know someone who's struggling. How can I build for the future, if you will, so that when stress hits or resilience hits, I don't have the anxiety that, that I would typically get? Or how should one take that proactive approach to building that better brain, if you will, and what to look out for? Do you want me to answer? I'll give it a go. Yes. Okay. Okay. We know who's going to, who's going to come and jump in on these different questions. Okay. So I have a few thoughts on your great question. And I ponder it a lot. And I pondered it in that I've looked at our data to try to help us answer that question. And I think what we have to first go to is that when you get a blood, like your typical blood panel done, and I know that there are more sophisticated panels that may be more helpful and give you a broader perspective on your nutrients and whether or not they're adequate. But if we think about those panels that are done, they're always comparing your, your blood amount of vitamin D or B12 or zinc. They compare it to the average. And so the average individual and what is what's known about that particular nutrient in blood. So 
it doesn't, what we know now is that, well, it's going to be, if it's deficient in the, in blood, that's a problem. But even if it's optimal in blood, that doesn't tell us that it's optimal in our brain. So that's all it's telling us is whether or not it's optimal, the, the range is okay in our blood. And what's, remarkable, well, remarkable about our bodies. There's amazing, lots of things that are remarkable. But one thing that can happen with some of the nutrients is that the, the body works really hard to make sure that it stays in a really tight range in our blood at the expense often of some organs. And so, or it might pull it, pull some calcium from, from bones in order to have it at an appropriate range in your blood levels. And so getting a blood panel doesn't necessarily tell us what, whether or not we have specific deficiencies for our own metabolic needs. It might say it's okay relative to other people, but it's not relative to ourself. And so we know that we're all genetically different and we all may have genetic, we have genetically different needs. So doing those panels may say you're okay relative to the population, but you might not be okay relative to yourself. And so I think there's some limits to some of those panels in that you might look okay. And I've, the number of times I've heard my GP did my blood levels and I'm fine. I don't need any supplements. Well, first of all, I'd say, well, they're, pro that's, that, they're not always that helpful for this reason. But the other thing is that they never test the full array of trace elements. They don't test your selenium levels. They don't test your molybdenum levels. You can do other testing, and I've seen the hair analysis testing. And I've poured over hair analysis testing and, and become incredibly frustrated with it because of what people will tell you, oh, you need to look at ratios and that'll uncover things. Well, what I do, I, I approach it as a scientist and say, okay, well, then people who are normal should never benefit from supplements. Right. I mean, that's the logic. And we've been able to answer that question from our data sets. And so we can look at people who come in normal and normal according to their blood results or hair results and say, OK, does that predict whether or not you respond to supplements to the broad spectrum of micronutrients? And the answer is basically no, which means that it doesn't mean that people who are deficient don't benefit. Yes, they do. But what I'm saying is that there are people with normal levels who can benefit slightly smaller number, but not statistically significant number of people still that, that benefit from that. So that means that if you go with this approach of test and then treat, you are missing a huge opportunity of helping people who would benefit from the nutrients. So does that answer your question? No, it does. And I'm, I'm curious, like, I know it's hard to generalize, but are, are there a certain set of nutrients that if you had to generalize, most people would benefit from. I got the impression from reading the book that you were a big fan of the Bs, B vitamins, which I know quite a lot. I have the double for, for context. Our audience has heard this a zillion yeah. times, but I'll repeat it. MTHFR, the double C677T. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had ridiculous sky-high homocysteine. Yeah. It was 63. I got it to 12 through B vitamins. With B vitamins, right. And your oh, B alone. vitamin she, levels, were they normal? I'm just curious. Everything else is pretty much normal. I, I am the, I get 28. I work with an incredible functional medicine doctor. I get 28 vials of blood every quarter. Yeah. I track everything. I'm a little bit you know, okay. on the spectrum with wow. regards to this. Yeah. And so Jason, I think what you're describing is I've heard it a lot, but what, as a, as, what I would love to see, and this study has never been done and it would be really expensive is to take people like you 
and random who's you're trying to get things in you're trying to achieve optimal health randomize you to one group getting the full workout of all of your levels done and and then and then deciding the treatment based on that and then the other group just is randomized to a broad spectrum approach with no with getting their blood panels but not using that to to inform treatment and see if there's any group difference so at this point, I don't know whether or not it's necessary. And the reason, though, why I raise this is that we've got a mental health crisis. And so we can't have, we can't afford, we don't have the number of practitioners to go and do all of the amazing testing that you've received. Uh, yes. Think about that on the big scale. We don't have, we've got such a massive treatment gap of people who are not receiving treatment right now. And then we're saying, you need to have every, all these testing done you can see that that's actually unachievable on the big population scale. So my thinking is first go for just the broad spectrum. If that's not getting you to an optimal level, that's when I would then say, let's start looking at this in a more individualized approach. 100% agreed. I'm, a, I'm the 1% of the 1%. I have access to the best. I'm an anomaly. Exactly. Uh, but like what more generally for someone listening mm. who's like, all right, I, I want to have the optimal yeah. diet for mental health. I want to supplement optimally for mental health. Like what are those general takeaways for someone listening yeah. who, who, who's not struggling, who feels okay, but like they want to optimize. Yeah. I want to say something, but it looks like Bonnie wants to go first. <laughs> well, I want to answer that, Julia. Go ahead if you want to say something. Well, I was just going to say that, I mean, the, there is research on the B vitamins and I don't want to, I, there's, which has shown that B vitamins are better than uh, placebo at reduction of stress. So that is a great place to go. But I'm always the one who's, who stares at data and knows the data intimately. And I know that based on our own data, that yes, B vitamins help after the earthquakes in Christchurch, New Zealand, after the flood that we that we did a collaboration together in Alberta, Canada. So we, we do know that they help, but I'll say that the people who were randomized to broad spectrum, if you look at some of them just generally, how are they feeling? Are they reporting feeling better? You have more of those people who are the broad spectrum. So it's almost, it is, there is an, a greater advantage to that, but B vitamins are easy. They're easily available. They're available in all your supermarkets. So it's a great place to start if you're feeling really stressed. Absolutely agree with it. I just wanted to say that we are mushing together two different outcomes, especially when you're talking about your own situation, Jason. If you're trying to change a blood level or bring down your homocysteine, that's one thing. But what we are looking at, in, and when Julia was using the phrase benefiting, she was talking about reduction of mental health symptoms. And so I think one of the most telling things that she has found, and she just said this, and I want to just pull it out and say it again for emphasis, is we have both known people individually, and there have been people in studies actually got better on a broad spectrum approach. You mentioned diet, and my question to you, for everyone listening, they're ready to go shopping at Whole Foods Market or Trader Joe's or wherever, wherever they go shopping, what do they need to pick up? If, if they're shopping for their brain, they want to eat for optimizing their mental health, what does the science say? What does the data say about the foods they should be enjoying, eating a lot more of? There are four areas of research that we cover in the book. I think of them as four clumps. And what they, and this is part of the reason we wrote the book is we just thought that none of these four 
the information from none of these four is getting out to the general public. And one area shows that in populations in general, those who eat a more Mediterranean whole foods diet have fewer symptoms of depression and anxiety. And that's replicated in many countries and over. A second type shows that you can predict the risk of everything from behavior disorders in kids to suicides in the longitudinal study from Japan based on dietary intake. Does the public know this? They should know this, that what you're eating now determines your risk for depression, say, six years from now. That's really important for the public to know. And then the others are treatment studies with whole of diet or treatment studies with micronutrients. So to optimize your health, you have to just follow that stream, Jason. You have to eat your whole foods, try to avoid 80% of the grocery stores. The food that you find there is highly processed with very few micronutrients. Don't buy it. It's not doing anything for you. Eat whole foods, learn to cook, and then if you still are symptomatic, it's probably important for you to consider supplementation. And of course, in chapter 11 of the book, we go over the broad spectrum formulas or multinutrient formulas for which there is independent scientific evidence. Jason, are you wanting us to say fruit and vegetables, nuts, legumes? Yeah, fish? yeah, I, I, I think. Oh, yeah, my. I think unpacking it. I think everyone gets the Mediterranean diet, but if there are, you know, what I am curious about. So Mediterranean diet, got it. And I'm going to go two directions. One, you also, and, and the Mediterranean diet does have some wild fish. Like there is some meat. It's not a lot. You also say in the book, if you were vegetarian or vegan, it seems like the reviews are mixed. When it, we're not talking about cardiovascular health, but no. mental health. Mental health. Mental health. Right. With mental health. So mental let's talk health. about that because yeah. there'll be a lot of vegetarians and vegans. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a challenge because there are a lot of people for ethical reasons and for climate change reasons who do want to eat a more vegan style or vegetarian style diet. And so there's, they have very good reasons for it. All that we're trying to highlight and that we're the messenger in this is that we, understand that if someone has mental health issues and that's that's who we're focused on and they're following a vegan vegetarian diet we wonder and this is supported by research whether or not the lack of getting in the the fish and the meat can contribute to their mental health presentation. And that's partly because in meat, there are certain nutrients that are more bioavailable than they would be in a plant source. B12, your zinc, your iron, they're more like you're, you're going to be able to better get those from a meat source. With your essential fatty acids, yes, you can get essential fatty acids from a plant-based diet, absolutely. You can eat your, your nuts, your seeds, your chia seeds, your walnuts, et cetera, absolutely. But the main omega-3 that is in your plant-based options are, is ALA, not DHA and EPA. And so it's very hard to get your EPA and DHA amounts up to the amount that they recommend and have found based on research, which is about one to two grams of EPA, DHA per day for people struggling with a mental health issue. You would have to eat, as I, I think we say in the book, a lot of seaweed in order to get to that level 
of um, EPA DHA. So that's the challenge that, and I, I've spent a lot of time looking at labels and uh, supplement labels to see if, and they'll say a great source of omega-3s. And then when you look at the version of it for a vegan vegetarian source, it's going to be mostly as ALA. Yeah. And I'm glad you pointed that out because everything I've read about, because there are a lot of omegas out there, you need the EPA DHA. It is superior to ALA. You need the, there's no getting around it. You need the wild fish source, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at this. So I think it's an important point. Going back to point number two, you said six years out, you can predict Mm. or the science suggests what you're eating. You can look at someone, let's unpack that. That's scary. So I can look at what I'm eating today and get an understanding of six years ago if I'm going to have an issue or not? No, this is, well, yeah, there are multiple studies I could mention, but I used the six years because of the Sun study from Spain. And what they did is they evaluated, they had about 9,000 people. I think they ended up with 6,000 by the end of the six years who were developing mental health, who were part of the mental health stream. And what they showed was that the people who ate the fewest of the the whole foods diet, the Mediterranean kind of diet, who were the least adherent to that, had a much higher risk six years later of developing depression. Now, what's really interesting, I think, for maybe for your listeners who are, you know, maybe have tendencies like you to be very much a purist, it sounds like, Jason, that it's okay to eat a a chocolate chip cookie occasionally because when they divided their- I love chocolate chip cookies. I love chocolate- (laughs) But you can't have them every day. And if you're going to have one, have the best one ever. Okay. So people say there's an 80-20 rule. I always think it should probably be 90-10, that we should really be feeding ourselves at least 90% of the time, making sure our brains are optimal 90% of the time, and then enjoy that darn chocolate chip cookie. But what they showed in the Sun study, when they divided their group into thirds, so they had the group that clearly was following a very, they were very adherent to a Mediterranean style diet. And then at the other hand, they had a third that didn't follow that at all. And they were eating a lot of processed foods. They also had a middle third. So they divided them in threes. And it turned out the middle third was following a Mediterranean diet a lot of the time, but they were a little more likely to have some processed food, processed meat, whatever along the way. And you know what? There was really no difference in their vulnerability to depression six years out compared to the people who were really strict and really rigid, especially now as we're breaking free of COVID, we hope. I think we should all enjoy a little bit of breaking some of those rules and not be too hard on ourselves. Well, you mentioned the Mediterranean diet and being rigid. And when I think Mediterranean, I think olive oil. I think beautiful salad, little wild fish, maybe a little, a little meat. And then I think of wine. And oh. what's your take on alcohol? I, I know it's... we didn't talk about alcohol no, in the book yeah. and we didn't go there. It would be too big because there's so much yeah. research on, on alcohol and specifically when it comes to, say, cognitive functioning, et cetera. So we kept having to chop bits out rather than be able to put things. In all fairness to the smiles trial that, that ran the... That, that looked at the Mediterranean diet, like had people randomized to uh, to Mediterranean diet versus social support, and they all had a, had come in with a really poor diet, and they were all depressed. That diet did include some wine, uh, red wine specifically. So that was that was allowed as part of their diet. So that's Got all it. we can that it was included. I get it. it. It's a big it, it's a big issue. We could it's do a whole show just on alcohol. So. Something else I loved in the book, like I, I, 
we love probiotics here. Everyone, everyone knows what probiotics are, but psychobiotics, I said, wow, that's interesting. So can we talk about psychobiotics? That, that, I, I stopped the page on that one. Ah, okay. You Great. Ahead, well, Julia. I've done some research on the psychobiotics. I mean, it's the it's the same idea as supplements, like minerals and vitamins in a pill form. It's that you're taking the those probiotics, those good bacteria, the bacteria that we know are healthy for our gut, but putting them in as a sometimes a pill form, sometimes a powder form, and ingesting them that way rather than ingesting them through your whole foods, your probiotic type foods like your yogurts. So that's that's the concept. Is that let's see if we can take in certain bacteria that way. But it's there's a, a book called The Psychobiotic Revolution. So if you wanted to just read know about that, then I'd say go and read Scott Anderson's book that he co-wrote with John Cryan and Ted Deenan, who are the world experts on psychobiotics. In fact, they coined that term psychobiotics, which is where you ingest these bacteria and then you're looking to see whether or not that has benefit for your mental health. And that's where the psycho part comes in. So it's 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 been a, a massive, an exploding area of research. We, my lab, did one of the earlier studies looking to see whether or not it could have an effect on depression. We did have a really high placebo effect, which was that many people got better, but they didn't get. No one got better in the active group where they received two strains of bacteria relative to the placebo group. So it was uh, unfortunately we weren't able to say that those specific two strains could benefit mental health more than what normal care provides you. So I don't want to say it didn't work, but that it didn't work any better than the placebo effect, which we have to, as scientists, always not, I hate saying battle against because we should always be harnessing the placebo effect, but it does make it more difficult when you're running these blinded types of trials. So, but the thing is that happens in this field as it does with any other field is that everybody has their favorite bacteria or their Mm -hmm. favorite couple of bacteria. And so the studies, when you look at them, they've got all their favorite, every investigator does their own favorite couple of, of bacteria strains and then looks to see whether or not it helps depression. In some cases it does, in some cases it doesn't. I think overall the feeling is that yes, there's probably some benefit from this approach of of consuming your bacteria via pill form. Um, It probably needs to be in a certain, in terms of the concentration needs to be high enough in order for them to survive and get through that whole going through the digestive system. So it does seem like there's definitely potential there, but it's challenged because of the fact that different pe- different investigators are using different strains. So then when you sort of throw it all together, like our scientists like to do, to try to see, is there something here? They're throwing a- apples and oranges together. So it's, it's a bit of a problem for the field. I'd like to point out, well, actually, I'll just ask Jason, is your audience educated about prebiotics? Is that something yes, but let, let's talk about it. We love prebiotics. We love postbiotics. <laughs> okay. We love anything biotic on it. We're, we're in. You got it. Well, not antibiotics. Anyway, um, well, I, sometimes I just, you need those too. Western and Eastern need to get along, and I, I'm that, with that's, you. That's they're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes Absolutely. you need pharmaceutical. Sometimes you need to, to meditate. A chocolate so. chip cookie, right? So, <laughs> or meditate. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that if you're really eating a whole foods diet, you are providing the prebiotics for the good gut bacteria and other microorganisms, but it's mostly bacteria, to thrive. And I mean, they replicate in the 30 to 45 minutes, some of them. So if you're feeding yourself whole foods with the fiber that they need to survive, 
you might do a better job actually than if you are randomly picking different probiotics. That's the problem about probiotics. Somebody once said recently that we should have signs in every produce department. These are all prebiotics. Here, this is where you get all of your good prebiotics for your gut. So let's say someone listening, they're they're doing all the right things. They're taking their multinutrient approach. They're having all their Bs. They're having their omegas with their EPA and DHA. They're eating plant-based whole foods. And this is where I'm going to go next because I'm eating my plant-based whole foods. But we have to talk about nutrient density because nutrient density is actually, I'm doing the right thing. I'm eating the broccoli. I'm eating the spinach. But nutrient density is decreasing. So can we spend a little time about and talk about that issue? How do we make sense of it? And what can we do? Well, we talk about some of the reasons for it in the book. And it's we have a half a chapter on the microbiome of the soil, which people don't think about. They think just about the microbiome of our gut. And we we teach people, I don't most people just don't know where they get their vitamins and minerals. They don't understand that, that they have to have plants absorbing minerals in order to for the plants to manufacture the vitamins. And then we come along, we eat the plants or we eat the animals that eat the plants and we get our vitamins and minerals that way. In addition, some of those darling little gut uh, bacteria do synthesize a little bit of B vitamins for us. We don't do anything. <laughs> We're completely dependent on the microbiome of the earth and the microbiome of our guts to provide what we need. So what's going on in the soil? Well, it's becoming kind of universally recognized that our soil has been demineralized. And that means that the plants cannot synthesize vitamins. And so it's a huge issue. And there's a whole movement called the regenerative agriculture movement. If you've sat in on any of those lectures, you'll learn about people trying to learn how to quit disturbing the soil so much, using no-till, using cover crops, And also, and it's usually just the tagline, also adding minerals back into the soil. Because what these, what our soil has experienced over the last, say, in North America, say 150 years or so, what it has experienced is we disturb the soil, we use up the minerals, farmers come along and they put into the soil what I put on my front lawn, which is NPK, okay? which is nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. A few of them add some calcium. So that's four. But we just told you that you've got to have roughly 15 in there, right? We said that a few minutes ago. Where are the others supposed to come from? The selenium, the zinc, the copper, the you name it. And so there is an increasing emphasis on trying to preserve that in the soil and put it back in the soil. And just a little bit of jargon for your listeners. If you hear people talking about how we have to balance the soil, I had a little trouble understanding that at first, but balancing means providing all the minerals and in balance. So it's remineralizing in proper amounts. So that's a problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem. So I love the book and it's filled with so many great anecdotes. So the research is fantastic. I'm curious in the process, was there a study or a paper that, that just was so shocking to you where you said, holy cow, I can't believe we're not talking about this. To, to me, there were, there were, a, there were a, lot. <laughs> a number, but a, a, there were a lot. Yeah, there were a lot. But, but um, what about what, what stood out for you? 
Well, of course, it would be Julia's research on ADHD (laughs) and emotion dysregulation as background, and then I'll turn it over to Julia for whatever she wants to say. As background, the FDA will approve for marketing a drug that shows two positive clinical trials, okay? And they might have run six negative trials, but if they find two that shows potential benefit, then that market can go to, uh, that drug can go to market. And just to throw in there though, Bonnie, yes. the latest, that latest drug that was approved for, for treatment of Alzheimer's yeah. only changes had the one. rules. Did I know. Change? Well, the second, though, yeah. did, I mean, did, they did um, statistical, min- yes, some of the, yeah, that was a, that's a huge issue because if that goes forward, it means that the whole landscape of FDA approvals has changed. It's not relevant to us, Jason, because we are not trying to market any products. And the people who make the products that we study are not looking for FDA approval. That is not the situation. But I just wanted you to understand that the the evidence base for nutrient treatment is greater than what the FDA requires for drugs. Do you want to talk about emotional dysregulation in general? Well, Santa? I don't know. I was just well, I could, but I was just reflecting on your question, and I didn't think that I was. I could actually cite my own work as being. <laughs> yes, you can. Of course, you can. Study. But the study that I am the most, I always reflect and think, "Wow, I'm really thrilled that we did this." Were the studies we did after the earthquake, and it's because of the context. And you have to understand that with the February 22nd earthquake, I was in my at the on the fifth floor of a building in in, in at the university. It in a, like I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake, but it was just terrifying. And, and this was in New Zealand. That, just this, this is, is the New Zealand yeah, earthquake. Yes, that's right. The New Zealand exactly. So it was in the city. This earthquake was right below us. It was really shallow. Ground acceleration was more than they'd ever recorded. So it was a massive earthquake that had so much personal effect on us. So I had to, for example, drive across the city to get to my family. The, some bridges were closed. We were having to constantly re-divert. There was liquefaction, which is where the water comes up and the, the ground turns to sand and mud. So it was an extraordinary event to live through. And also that our house was really badly damaged. This one that I'm in right now, but for years and years we were living in an incredibly damaged house. So, the context of the of those earthquakes, the city center was destroyed. It's still being rebuilt. 185 people died. So, it was a, a time of great turmoil. And within that, we came up with an idea of how to study the idea of can we help these people who are struggling with so much stress. And it was ongoing. There were earth aftershocks ongoing. And so we were able to show the really substantial, dramatic impact of just giving people additional nutrients to reduce their stress under such chronic uh, stress environment. And I think that's the study for me, even though it's not perfect, you can pull it apart in terms of some limitations of it. We were doing something within the real world and that's what makes, you know, that for me, I made a difference for the people in my city around helping them with overcoming serious trauma. And also replicated in the after the flood in Alberta, an yes. exact replication, a single event in Alberta, 8,000 aftershocks in, in Christchurch, and then the mass shootings. 
which Americans might like to know about because, I mean, it was just unbelievable that she replicated in New Zealand after the the massacres in the two mosques, exactly what we showed elsewhere. It just really nails down the message, Jason, that resilience, nutrition is the foundation of our resilience, period, physical and mental. And going through the pandemic, going through mass shootings, whatever it is, to the trauma of war, people need to be well-nourished and their brains have to be well-nourished. Amen. We'll close there. Julia, Bonnie, thank you so much. Thank you. 